This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hi, Code Switchers. Shereen here. If you listen to the show a lot, one of the things you hear me say a lot is it's complicated. And that's because the stories we tell have a lot of nuance. They're messy and challenging, and they force us to think in different ways. Way too often, stories about people of color strip all that nuance out, and they just flatten us. The Code Switch team works hard to give these stories the dimensions and complexity that they deserve. And one of the reasons we're able to tell stories like this is because of support from our listeners. First of all, thank you for listening. And if hearing the kinds of stories and perspectives we bring on Code Switch has been meaningful to you, I'm asking you to support your local public radio station. Your donation makes programs like this and all the other podcasts you love possible. You can do that by going to donate.npr.org slash codeswitch. Donate.npr.org slash codeswitch. Thanks again. Now on to the show. Just a warning, there's some strong language in this episode. I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know something we have in common here on the Code Switch team is that we're all hardcore book nerds. We love books. Mm -hmm. Our teammate Karen Grigsby Bates reads at least a book a week. I don't know how she does that. Uh, We spend a lot of time talking about the books we love, the ones we're reading, the ones we're rereading, the ones we're right about to jump into. I was gifted N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, and Mm -hmm. Gene, that is about to be my next read, or reads, because there's three books, trilogy. (laughs) It's sci-fi fantasy, um, and I think the title of the trilogy says so much, The Broken Earth. We're there now. Trying to end the year on (laughs) an upbeat note, I see. Yes, exactly. I'm just starting, just starting, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Um, I've had it in my Kindle for like like months now, uh, and it was on all these year end like best of lists, and I was like, yo, I really really need to get at that. So that is my my project as I'm getting ready to move and stuff. Oh well, tell me if it's good. I absolutely will, absolutely will. But I've heard nothing but good things, and she's an amazing writer. But since our team is all over the place, generationally and racially, you know, our tastes in books they run the gamut. We've talked to a you know big range of authors about a whole big range of subjects, like Terry McMillan, the legendary Terry McMillan, you know, she of disappearing acts and waiting to exhale. Um, yes. And she talked to us about the triumphs and the tribulations of being a woman and getting older. It's not easy. I have watched women over the years, my mother, my aunts, my friends, and teenage girls and all the stuff that we go through. And it's... And our lives are hard, and we manage, and we have to manipulate and try to second-guess folks and still want to be happy and be sexual beings and smart and educated. And if you call that chick lit, then I don't want to say it, but it, it we're not chicks. We're women. <laughs> Gene, it sounded like Terry was about to say, and if you call that chick lit, then you can go... F yourself. But then she thought otherwise. 
Uh, Carla Cornejo Villavicencio, our next author, who we're going to hear a little bit from, she would have said it. <laughs> that is just who Carla is. She wrote the book, The Undocumented Americans, and she told me she is tired of the sad, hardworking immigrant trope. She was a finalist for the National Book Award, by the way. I had always thought of myself as an artist, but I knew that the offers to represent me literarily weren't coming from a place of admiring me as a writer, but from a place of seeing me as an immigrant who had a sad story to tell. And that pissed me off. They wanted me to call my undocumented status my dirty little secret. And I remember pushing back and being like, like, that sounds like a vibrator. Like, I'm not going to do that. I love Carla. I love that conversation, y'all. It was so good. Oh, thank you. Yes. If you haven't heard it, go back, listen. It's well worth the listen. Uh, We speak to authors like Carla uh, to better understand experiences that may not be like our own or to highlight stories that have often been ignored. Also, like Usma Jalaluddin did in Aisha at Last. One of the things I really wanted to do, and I think that... um, that is one of the central themes of uh, I Shot Last, is the idea of diversity within diverse communities. And this is across the board. You know, a lot of people think of South Asians, uh, you know, having a very strong tradition of arranged marriage. And while that is true in some families, in other families, it's completely unheard of. We spoke with Tomi Adeyemi, who is the author of Children of Vengeance and Virtue, about putting new faces into genre fiction. Like, we don't have to imagine oppression. This is real. We don't have to imagine what it would be like to be a refugee. There are refugees. Um, So it was sort of like, okay, fantasy and sci-fi, they are all stories of oppression, but largely erase the people in our contemporary society that are actively being oppressed. So I'm going to do what fantasy and sci-fi has always done, um, but this time I'm going to do it from a very personal place. As you can hear, we shout out the writing of women of color all the time on Code Switch. And today we're going to hear from another author, another woman of color, whose work helps illuminate perspectives that don't often get enough daylight. And to do that, we're listening back to an interview I did in January 2020, when things were better-ish. Take us back to those good old days, the outside days, Shereen. I'll start things off with a quote. If you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. That's from the writer Zora Neale Hurston, and damn, it is powerful. If you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. My first time seeing that quote was in Carmen Maria Machado's book, In the Dream House. It was just released in paperback last week. In the Dream House is about Carmen's relationship with an ex-girlfriend who psychologically tormented her. But that's too simple of a description. The book is complex. It's complicated, as we often say on the show. Reviewers have called it the most innovative memoir out there, period. There's cultural criticism in it and a choose-your-own-adventure. The chapters are organized by genre. Dreamhouse as murder mystery. Dreamhouse as haunted mansion. Dreamhouse as lesbian pulp novel. It's like the way I organize everything, so it just made sense that it was the way that I would organize this book that in many ways felt impossible to write, you know, and impossible to categorize. That's Carmen. I would describe it. Oh, my God. I know it's funny because people have been describing it really differently. Um, 
I guess I would describe it as an exp- <laughs> an experimental memoir mm-hmm. about many things, including queer intimate partner violence that uses genre as a mode of interrogation. Dreamhouse as inciting incident. You meet her on a weeknight at dinner with a mutual friend in a diner in Iowa City where the walls are windows. She is sweaty, having just come from the gym, her white blonde hair pulled back in a short ponytail. She has a dazzling smile, a raspy voice that sounds like a wheelbarrow being dragged over stones. She's that mix of butch and femme that drives you crazy. You and your friend are talking about television when she arrives. You have been complaining about men's stories, men's stories, how everything is men's stories. She laughs, agrees. She tells you she's freshly transplanted from New York, drawing on employment insurance and applying to MFA programs. She's a writer, too. Every time she speaks, you feel something inside you drop. You will remember so little about the dinner, except that, at the end of it, you want to prolong the evening, and so you order tea of all things. You drink it, a mouthful of heat and herb, scorching the roof of your mouth, while trying not to stare at her, trying to be charming and nonchalant while desire gathers in your limbs. Your female crushes were always floating past you, out of reach, but she touches your arm and looks directly at you, and you feel like a child buying something with her own money for the first time. So this woman who made you feel like a child buying something with her own money for the first time, you enter into a relationship with her, and this relationship is anything but your fantasy relationship. Um, And in the book, you write that fantasy is this defining cliche of female queerness that, you know, define desire, love, everyday joy without men's accompanying bullshit (laughs) is a pretty decent working definition of paradise. So when was your first realization that this was not that fantasy? You know, I think there was an incident that happens a few months into into our relationship, which I mentioned in the book, where... I had been helping out somebody that I met at a job that we were working, the two of us, like a temp job. And I sort of vanished for a little bit because I was helping this person. And when my ex finally got in touch with me, she was so angry and she was yelling and she um, yelled so badly at me that I told her, like, don't don't talk to me like that. Like, that's not okay how you're yelling at me right now. And she threatened me and said, don't ever write about this. Like, do you understand me? And I feel like looking back on it, it was the first moment where there was this twinge of, like, it was really unpleasant. It was a really horrible sort of thing that felt weird in my stomach. And I remember thinking, like, no, that's not good. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because, like, so many worse things happened after that. And I feel like that sense got really dulled, you know, by repetition. Mm -hmm. Eventually it became, this is routine. This is just what happens. But in, in that first moment, I remember just being very troubled and sort of concerned about it. Um, and then thinking, like, it must just be a fluke. You know, it must just be like a, it was a bad day. The first book about lesbian abuse was published the year I was born. Not the most ancient scholarship in the world, but old enough. Why did no one tell me? But who would have told me? I knew so few queer people, and most of them were my age, still figuring things out themselves. I imagine that one day I will invite young queers over for tea and cheese platters and advice, and I will be able to tell them, 
you can be hurt by people who look just like you. Not only can it happen, it probably will, because the world is full of hurt people who hurt people. Even if the dominant culture considers you an anomaly, that doesn't mean you can't be common, common as fucking dirt. The title of that chapter is The Dream House as Self-Help Bestseller. And while you were writing this book, and you you put this in the book, you went looking for other stories that would help you make sense of this story and your own experience with queer domestic abuse. What did you find out there? Not a whole lot, unfortunately. I mean, you know, domestic violence as a topic of nonfiction, I mean, there's a lot of really, really beautiful special books about it in the world. So it seemed really odd to me that there just weren't any about queer like it just seemed like a very like odd omission and it made my job a lot harder because I sort of think I thought that I could sort of dive in and you know maybe there would be like some really good like a book that sort of touched on like some good historical examples that then I could sort of direct my research you know and there was just nothing. Why was it important for you to dig in that way to do this kind of academic research why couldn't you just be like you know what it's going to be structured based on genre and I'm going to write about my own experience and I don't need to think about it in this very academic way, or this is not necessary. When we don't allow people context for their experiences and things that have happened to them, it's a kind of violence, you know, and it almost there's almost an implication of like, you're crazy. And so for me, the sort of academic or historical piece of it is part of that context. It's like, you know, it's not just me. It's like a thing that has happened, like a thing that exists. I mean, I feel like writing the book, I kept kind of running up against my own anxieties about my own insufficiencies, you know, and the ways in which I felt like I would inevitably fail certain people. You know, I was like, what about these folks? What about these folks? Like, you know, I really hope I do them justice. I hope that I've written a book that I can be proud of. And that, like, you know, will do good work in the world. Did that haunt you? Because I noticed in your afterward, you did say very explicitly, hey, um, I'm more comfortable writing from my lens, which is a cisgender queer woman. Um, And I want to acknowledge that I am not explicitly talking about gay men or queer men or gender nonconforming people um, in this book. Did, Did you just feel haunted by the fact that you couldn't do that? Yeah, I don't know if haunted is the right word, but I definitely kept thinking, like, when when people do create art from any marginalized identity that hasn't gotten a lot of space in that way, everybody who's connected to the identity in any way then wants that piece of art to be everything. Yes. And I feel like that pressure is, like, terrifying, but the pressure is not the, not the fault of that artist. It's the fault of the fact that they are, like early on in a process. And so I feel like, yeah, that was, I thought that was on my mind. And I kept thinking, you know, like, imagining somebody reading the book and being like, well, that's great. But like, what about me? Sort of wanting to say like, you know, this book, like if you can pull something from this book that is useful to you, like it's for you, that's okay. But also like wanting to clarify my position, you know, saying like, this is where I'm coming from. And like, there might be an entirely different book or, you know, to be written about like transness and its, its relationship to this or like a black queer perspective or like whatever and like that is important to me that that exists and that that like there's space for that and that like people know that I know that like I can only create what I can create and that there's like room there's like m- so much room thank you for and we feel this all the time on code switch yeah we get a lot of reaction from listeners who are like hey I wasn't represented in that story right it's like no anything can be everything for everyone 
right? And like when you're creating a space in a canon or you're creating like a piece of like some room in a sort of existing space, like, yeah, you're, there's always going to be this lack because, you know, it's not like, I don't, I don't know. So I understand that. And I feel like that pressure is like so intense. And it really, I mean, I feel like it, I felt it when I wrote the, for my first book, but I really felt it with this book. I want to go back to this this feeling of this unwillingness to air dirty laundry that you really mm. <laughs> you go to a few times in this book. It's um, and I I just think it's so relatable to lots of people with marginalized identities. You know, it's this this idea that we're all fighting to be seen as full human beings, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, but the minute we talk about what's bad and ugly, the minute that we put that out in public, it's used against us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I know you were saying that you're, you're writing from a very particular perspective, but I, f- I just feel like that is incredibly relatable. And has has anybody talked to you about how relatable that is, like yes. other people with different identities? Yes, a lot of people, actually. Um, I did an interview and the writer was saying to me, like, that in her community, she's like, we don't talk about sexual violence. And like, I really wish we did. And, you know, feeling like you have to perform respectability, you have to like this respectability politics. And it's so damaging. It's like as damaging as the sort of lack of context, right? Where it's like, you can't say like a thing happened to me because like the person who did it to me falls into some category. And like, I mean, it makes me feel like I'm glad that the book exists and people can say that, but also it just makes it like breaks my heart. Well, in in Dream House as Sniffs from the Ink of Women, you Mm -hmm. end that with, you know, I didn't want her to be jealous or cruel. Years later, if I could say anything to her, I'd say, for fuck's sake, stop making us look bad. Yeah. (laughs) But the fact that that the cliche of the crazy queer woman is one that I I don't want to indulge in, but also like how terrible that like the fact that non-queer women have used that stereotype, therefore I, a queer woman, cannot write a story about a mentally ill queer woman like it just felt like really messed up and I was like that's that's just like not okay and but then I was like but I also don't want to like perpetrate stereotypes and like hurt my community you know I need the reader to know that I know that this is complicated you know like I don't want them to think that I'm sort of uncritically embracing all this um but it's like hard and it's hard to be sort of told like because other people have sort of fucked up in the way they've represented your community or your identity that like you also can't talk about things that have happened to you or things that are real or things that are interesting. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Psst. It's me, Shireen, here again. Just pop it in to say that now is the perfect time to pause, make yourself a cup of tea, and head to donate.npr.org slash codeswitch. Thank you. From young to old. How many 99-year-olds have you interviewed? A look at how this pandemic has changed people's lives forever. You're officially married. I'm going to Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Shireen, just Shireen, Code Switch. Here's Carmen Maria Machado reading from In the Dream House, the chapter called Dream House is Ambiguity which talks about a woman named Deborah Reed. The attorneys believed, rightly, that Deborah needed to fit the traditional domestic abuse narrative that people understood. The abuse needed to be a feminine figure, meek, straight, white, and the abuser a masculine one. That Deborah was black didn't help her case. It worked against the stereotype. In another early lesbian abuse case, in which a woman gave her girlfriend a pair of shiny black eyes, the prosecutor acknowledged that while she was grateful for and surprised by the abuser's conviction, she believed that the fact that the defendant was butch and black almost certainly played into the jury's willingness to convict her. In the book, you write that, you know, if you've suffered domestic abuse in a relationship and you're a woman, if you're going to be believed, you better be feminine, you mm. you better be straight, and you better mm. be white. Yep. And um, it's going to be really difficult for you if you're someone like Deborah Reed. First of all, what is Deborah Reed's story and why did you choose to include her story in this memoir? So one of the stories that sort of came up in my research was this group of women called the Framingham Eight. Um, It was in the early 90s. Um, the Boston Globe sort of broke this story to this big feature about these women. It was eight women who were in Framingham prison who had, were all in prison for killing their abusive spouses or partners. And Deborah Reed was black, and she was also the only lesbian in the group who had killed an abusive female lover. And what was so interesting to me was like all of the coverage about her either did not at all or barely touched on her being a lesbian. They didn't sort of know what to do with her. And, and then part of the process was then they were doing these like hearings for clemency. And during these hearings or whatever that were happening in front of this committee, Deborah Reed's lawyers were really struggling. So all the things I read about it were basically saying that like, they were like trying to make her the woman. They were like, you know, she cooked, she cleaned, she took care of the children. Like her, the person she killed was like the man in the relationship, um, which hits upon like a series of like very interesting sort of problems and cliches around this topic, which is like, first of all, the idea that you need to sort of establish like who the man and the woman is in like a queer relationship. Mm. And eventually they did not give her clemency. And so, yeah, so Deborah looks over the rest of her sentence. And I was just so, I was just, I kept, I was like hunting down everything I could find about her, which was not a lot. And I don't know. And just being really troubled and like feeling for her. And I think about her like every day. I I love that you put her in the book. Like I, I love that you told these stories of these black women. I want to stick with the topic of race here and talk a little bit about your racial identity. I noticed there were some 
references to Cuba in the book. Yeah. But it wasn't until page 236 in the hardback version that I'm like, oh, Carmen Maria Machado is Cuban. Because mm. <laughs> you write about visiting Cuba and you call it your ancestral home, I think. Um, and you, you visit with your brother. Yeah. It, is there a reason that your cultural background isn't brought up that often? Well, there's a few reasons. Um, one of which is that I'm white presenting and I recognize that that's like a privilege that I have and that I have this anxiety that like if I talk too much about it or if I make it too much a big thing about my life that like people will think I'm like appropriating something or that I'm like mm-hmm. absorbing some identity that isn't fully mine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I feel like part of me felt like to write about it too much would feel like it wasn't accurate to like my experience of the world, you know, mm-hmm. um, or accurate to my identity in the set. Yeah, I just didn't want to like, I don't I don't know. Does that make any sense? I feel it like I'm not explaining it well. Well, as but, I'm Iranian and Puerto Rican and so... I really feel uncomfortable speaking about my Iranianness because I grew up much more Puerto Rican. And so everyone's like, why don't you ever talk about being Iranian? And I'm yeah, kind of like, yeah. well, so I, I am, but like, I don't know enough about it. And I feel like, yeah. I, I just feel like I, I, I want to do justice to this wonderful identity. And I feel like I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was telling, so I, I was in Philadelphia. I was in Center City and I got recognized by a, a clerk at a store um, who was like, oh, I'm a fan. Like, I, I just recognized you. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. And then she said this thing that really stressed me out. She was like, yeah, like, I wasn't sure if it was you because I was like, oh, all white people look alike. What? And I was like, I, I get what you're saying. And I totally understand. And I didn't say anything about it at the moment. I was just sort of like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, I but it really like bothered me and I kept I kept kind of like turning it over in my head and I got home and it was this very weird mood and I was like, how would I even respond to that? Like insisting, being like, I'm not because I'm like, I'm not white, but I look white. And so it feels like and I thought you know, my, my mom is white, you know, like I grew up in, you know, which is to say that like I grew up like I, know, I grew up in the fucking suburbs. Like I had experience that feels very like sort of, you know, middle class and white and. And I feel like in many ways I feel like sort of isolated from parts of my like Latina identity mm-hmm. and 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 Spanish as a language and like all these things and I and I I don't know what to make of that and I always feel like kind of weirdly trapped by that that discourse yeah and then have it having it happen in real life where there was just no way to respond to it where I was like you think that I'm white I'm not white but if I insist that I'm not white it's going to be a whole situation like there's going to be a whole <laughs> thing and I don't want to go through that whole thing. So this is all to say, um, yeah, like it felt like an important part of my book, but like a small important part, like mm. important in the sense that it's part of my identity, but also like I feel like there were larger things to talk about. Like I feel like my fatness played into the story of the way that my abuse manifested and took place mm-hmm. and was possible, like more than my race. Does that make sense? It does. Full transparency here. I wouldn't know a damn thing about Carmen's work if it wasn't for Code Switch producer Kumari Devarajan. I ended up going to an artist residency over the summer, my first time ever doing something like that. And Kumari encouraged me to read Carmen's short story, The Resident, which is about a writer who attends an artist residency called Devil's Throat. And let's just say it was very 
creepy. So you're scared and can't, don't, won't go outside at all. <laughs> like, so you just stay in the cabin and never go anywhere. <laughs> um, and I actually didn't read it before I left, which I'm so glad I didn't. I bought your whole book of short stories and I read it while I was there. And all that to say, um, she introduced me to you and your work. I'm super hooked on your work. Would you mind if she came in and asked you a couple of questions? I oh, feel like. n- okay. not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> Should I leave the studio no, so you can no, have no, time no. together? Okay. <laughs> Please stay. Okay. <laughs> um, um, I'm usually not on this side of the the wall. I'm usually watching this happen and listening. So bear with oh. me. <laughs> no, no worries. Hi. Hi. So I, I loved your memoir. Um, and I found myself when I was reading it, I would get really nervous every time you were describing a sex scene or describing sex. Mm. And I think I'm just I'm very protective of like queer sex and lesbian sex. And I don't mm. want like men or straight people to be... Oh. reading it <laughs> but I That's also so I really appreciated how honest you were in both its eroticism and the abusiveness of the sex that you write mm. about but yeah I just want to know what you were thinking when you were writing that stuff I was thinking I do not want my father to read this <laughs> um it's so funny because it's like my first book was so sexually explicit but it is really different writing a memoir in which you have a sexually explicit material because I mean probably everyone assumes that before you were writing about sex you've had or or something or sex you've imagined having but if you're putting it in the memoir like you have you know there's something about the sort of immediate like embodiment of it which i think is true of like all memoir writing right where it's like there's always this element of like like like, like when you're when your author's standing in front of you like you're talking about fiction they're you're like oh, i'm seeing the product of their mind but then when they're standing in front of you talking about memoir you're like oh i am seeing the product of like the physical being that's like standing in front of me that I could like reach out and touch you know and so I feel like the sex part of it is like also part of that where it becomes immediately like very stressful and intimate in this way that you're not expecting I sort of went back and forth about how much I wanted to show because it wasn't like the Carmen sex show you know (laughs) or I felt like I shouldn't be that you know yeah, I don't know. I think it's funny that you say that you feel like protective of it. Like you don't want the people to know how great it is or something. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason I write about sex in general really explicitly is because I feel like a like queer sex is an art form and deserves to be treated as such. And also like it, it deserves a kind of sort of beautiful, I think, language that we've gotten in so many other ways. You know, for so many other things. And it's like sex is like one of the most human things we do, right? And so it feels just so important to the story. And like, I'd be lying if I said that like sex was not a thing that like kept me, like the potency of my desire and my like want to be wanted and my want to fuck and my want to come, like that that was not like in a really intense part of like this whole relationship. Yeah. I was also really struck by the certain pieces of your childhood that you chose to include. And it it kind of all culminated for me in this one part where you are kind of wondering if you've been trained or groomed to be in this abusive situation. You ask if this is because you've been tenderized like a pork chop. I'll never forget that line. Mm. Why did you choose to include the few glimpses of, of how you grew up? I mean, you know, my parents got divorced a few years ago and it was like pretty ugly And it was sort of the first time that anyone in my family kind of acknowledged, like, how bad my parents' marriage was. And what we had grown up thinking was normal or thinking was, like, the way that you conducted a relationship. And so that that was important to me. And it was important to me to talk about, you know, the way that my father talked about gender as, like, a really important sort of way of understanding 
certain sort of um, thoughts that like seemed normal to me when I was an adult that I talk about in the book. And I, and I feel like, you know, when you're telling a story about a relationship, like you're never telling a story about just like the thing that happened between like X date and X date, right? It's always about the people that came to that space and then left it, you know, and how they came to it and how they left it. And like for me, coming to that relationship in particular, it was like all the bits that came before, you know, how you grow up thinking about sex and love, like what relationships you look at the way in which you perceive yourself in relationship to all these things, like that is who you are and that is who is one of the people coming to that situation. And so, yeah. So this is the first book that I found and read that that's like this, that talks about queer domestic violence um, and talks about something that is an experience similar to one I've had. And I'm wondering if you've gotten reactions from people who have gone through similar things and what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, a lot. Um, I mean, I wish the answer was nobody. No, nobody, nobody else has ever felt that way, because um, then it would mean that you know there was less pain in the world. But I mean, people. Yeah, I mean, I've been getting. I mean, I've been doing events for the book, and I've been getting a lot of people just coming up to me and saying something to the effect of like, you know, this really spoke to something that happened to me. It really meant a lot to me. Thank you. Um, but I, I was really surprised. Even before the book came out, I was getting messages from people who were saying, you know, I know you didn't write this for me. Like, I had one person who was like, I'm a straight woman. But I've been in, like, an emotionally and psychologically abusive relationship, and I've just never seen that represented anywhere, so thank you. And then I wrote another email, like, very soon after that from uh, a man who was like, I'm a man who was abused by my ex-wife, and I've never seen a representation of a woman as an abuser before, and, like, thank you. And both of them were sort of acknowledged, like, I know this was not meant for me, but it really spoke to me. And I feel like there's something really interesting about, yes, seeing how people are responding to the book and, you know, understanding that they maybe not don't share certain things about my identity, but also that, like, it's speaking to, like, sort of a large range of experiences that just haven't been given a lot of space. Um, And that's really, that's really special. I mean, that really, I mean, it makes me, I mean, it makes me sad in some ways because it means that, you know, there's just a lot of pain, but it also makes me feel like the pain of writing the book was worth it. That was Carmen Maria Machado talking about her book, In the Dream House. And that's our show. But before we go, we want to tell you a little something. Gene, I need you back here. What's that? Okay, I'm back. I'm back. Okay. <laughs> uh, because we want to let you know about some very special book content that's coming up on the Code Switch podcast. It has been such a bizarre year with so much news that... We figured a bunch of you might have missed out on some of the best, most interesting books that came out this year. So our teammate Karen Grigsby Bates did a little recon for you. KGB spoke to the owners of some independent bookstores focused on people of color around the country and asked them to recommend the best books that they thought did not get enough shine this year, like this one. The Barren Grounds follows two Indigenous children, Morgan and Eli, that are in the Canadian foster care system. In their newest foster home, they discover a portal in the attic to another frozen, barren ground world. You can also check out NPR's online book concierge, which just came out for 2020. Go to NPR.org to find that. It includes recommendations from just about every member of the Code Switch team. So don't miss that. By the way, you know where else there's some solid book, music, and TV recs? Hmm. No, tell me, Gene. The Code Switch newsletter, which, you know, you can subscribe to 
by going to npr.org slash newsletters. You can follow us on Twitter and on IG. We're at NPR Code Switch. This episode was produced by Kumari Devarajan and edited by Leah Danella. And a shout out to the rest of the CS Familia, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Jess Kung, Natalie Escobar, Alyssa Zhang Perry, Steve Drummond, and L.A. Johnson. Our intern is Alyssa Beheza, and it's her last week on Code Switch. Yes. Alyssa... You've done so much. She's very dope. She's our first intern in the post-pandemic world, so it was extra difficult for her. So we appreciate all the work she put in. If you haven't already, y'all should follow her on Twitter. She's at Alyssa Beheza, A-L-Y-S-S-A-B-A-H-E-Z-A. We expect great things from her. Yes, we do. She's great. High so good luck, expectations. Alyssa. Good luck and happy reading to all of you code switchers. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Peace. Writer Baratunde Thurston says this democracy experiment requires more than just voting. This is incumbent on all of us. It takes two. Right? It takes two to make a thing go right. It <laughs> takes two to knock it out of sight. And both parties, in a national level discourse, both sides have to still remain committed. How to be a good citizen. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.